Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, I'm Steph. And I'm Simon. And welcome to The Food Fight where we offer a different perspective on food culture issues around Australia and the world. We'll talk with chefs, producers, business owners and experts to hear their stories and find out what makes them tick. This episode, we're speaking with Laura Dalrymple and Grant Hilliard from Feather and Bone Provador in Marrickville about their new book, The Ethical Omnivore, Whole Animal Butchery, Regenerative Agriculture and the Role Animals Play in a Sustainable Food System. Okay, welcome to another Food Fight podcast. My name's Steph Bostuma with my co-host here, Simon Evans. Hello. And we are sitting here in Marrickville upstairs at Feather and Bone Provador, joined by Laura Dalrymple and Grant Hilliard. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, we start our podcast with an acknowledgement of country. So we would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather today and talk and pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Okay. Feather and bone. Um, some people may have heard of it. Some people may have eaten the meat that you produce out of here in the past. And you've just released this beautiful cookbook called The Ethical Omnivore, which we will get to. But for people who don't know, Laura, we'll start with you. Do you want to give us a bit of a, a background on Feather and Bone? Because there is so much to this business and you address so many important issues in the business and in the book. Um, so it's, it's worth explaining to get started. Do you want... So what Feather and Bone is... Let's, let's start there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm a bit nervous about saying this in front of Grant because he might not agree. <laughs> <laughs> Grant, feel free to jump no. in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, really I suppose our business is organised around the idea of creating a transparent line of sight from the producer to the consumer and back again. Um, our objective is to provide viable options for people who are looking to... Uh, to purchase food that's raised in systems which are benign and um, and uh, uh, which grow fertility and resilience and build community. Um, uh, it's been interesting actually because the ethical omnivore, which is the name of our book, um, it's a little bit contentious, and I guess the explanation of what an ethical omnivore is is also central to what we're doing as a business because what we're trying to do is support um, producers and consumers who want to buy food that is grown in ways which align with their value systems with their ethics um, so we see that the conventional 
or contemporary food landscape is riddled with problems. It's a bit of a minefield um, and most uh, contemporary agriculture has more in common with mining than it does with ideas of traditional food production. And so um, our goal and our job is to find farmers who are doing really wonderful work in building fertility and resilience um, and vibrant ecosystems and promote their work to consumers who are looking for better options. Mm. Okay, and Grant, Correct. neither of you <laughs> agreed. <laughs> There's a lot more to it. I mean, that, that's, no, that's, that's a very good, that's a good pricey. I mean, it's a good mm. starting point. Yeah. Um, but go on. Okay. So ne- neither of you are butchers by trade. Neither no. of you have a background in, in butchery. And I just want to get an idea of where, how, where, was, the, where was the initiation of this journey towards, um, you know, maybe conscious food consumption in your own life. Mm. And then I guess what must amount to an obsession to carry that over into a brand new business in, a, in an industry that you've not worked in before. Uh, well, ignorance, complete ignorance, uh, <laughs> is, is remarkably <laughs> protective, you know, at some level. Um, and I think that would explain the early days. Uh, I, I worked in restaurants and it was a sommelier in restaurants and, and um, through sourcing wine, I became very interested in the way it was produced as much as the wine itself. I was very interested in the, the viticulture and... Uh, it's only through visiting a vineyard that you really sort of get to you locate the wine and that sort of seems to be a reasonably uh, accepted idea in when it comes to wine but it certainly wasn't really thought about when it came to the proteins the main proteins that we were sourcing in the restaurant so I sort of was getting oil and garlic and various other products that we were using mostly at Sean's Panorama in the last I've worked there for nine mm-hmm. years yep. um, and Sean was unusual in that he cooked mostly cooked on the bone and then carved off it after he had cooked it which was fairly still very unusual Mm. actually um but in terms of rewarding flavor and and the experience for the diner there was an extremely strong sort of response to that it seemed to me so he gave me the freedom to to be able to source things and would welcome them into the restaurant and that started with a rare breed lambs or older breeds of lamb which um weren't differentiated they were still you could you you know beef was starting to be differentiated a bit and certainly obviously fish species but um lamb just came as the the most you would find would be it was milk fed or possibly organic they were the only really sort of just differentiations between between lamb but nothing about breed which i thought was sort of bizarre really um so a chance um listening to a program on Radio National and one of the people being interviewed said that um, if you haven't had Southdown lamb, you haven't lived. And I sort of thought that Southdown lamb, that sounds sort of interesting and did a bit of research on it. And it turns out that they're sort of the progenitors of all Southern English lamb, um, black suffix and everything that we presume that we have now is more or less has come from Southdown. Um, And I was curious as to why they weren't around and why you couldn't buy them and that sort of took about six months to find someone who would sell me three <laughs> and uh he's a breeder he was a breeder yeah. an obstetrician and a breeder and uh it was a sideline for him but um he I, I wasn't planning to butcher them i was just planning to sell them a whole to restaurants so 
uh, three chefs bought three different lambs, and um, and it was it was a curiosity really. I wasn't really making any claims for it, and I was sort of open to whether it would be any better or, or worse. Um, it was more just to sort of say, well, what, what's the difference between these lambs and and others? And it turns out Southdown are are very fine textured. They're beautiful leading lambs and um, very hard to come by these days, especially in New South Wales. There's there's more in Victoria still, but um, they're pretty hardy too, aren't they? Oh uh, yeah, they're very <laughs> unattractive sheep. Actually, yeah, they, uh, are. they look like bulldogs. <laughs> yeah, there's a very broad. There's no such thing in Wales. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because they're also still sort of remnant in New Zealand as well, and that would be um, so. Anyway, they they. They were good, and it, it, one thing led to another, and so I was able to buy a few more. And um, and then someone said, "Oh, you might be interested in some pigs," and <laughs> and I was uh, an organic pig grower down in the, in the snow mountains, and um, they were small, so I didn't have to break those up. But eventually, people wanted parts of them, and um, and that forced me into the position of having to learn how to break them down. And there so was no business plan. It no. was entirely organic. Yeah, but at what point? So, like, it sounds like the the interest was initially in finding rarer breeds and in providing quality to chefs mm. and something different to chefs and stuff. Where did the where did the path go towards sustainability and and, yeah. and regenerative agriculture and ethical consumption? Uh, yeah, that, that, that grew, I think. It was always an interest and I, in that I was, you know, particularly interested if I could get organic um, certified uh, meat or, or garlic or whatever for the, for the restaurant at that stage. Um, but it's, it's grown over the 15 years we've been doing this, really. And Can so, just to interrupt in. quickly, I think it's also fair to say that the the farms from which Grant was originally sourcing, the farmers who were interested and curious and adventurous enough to be growing these unusual breeds, if you like, those people were not growing according to largely weren't growing according to conventional standards they you know these animals were grown outside slow growing heritage breeds for example grown outside they weren't grown in sheds so from the beginning although it may not have been you know the the um the driving initially articulated as the driving force none nothing that grant ever bought at the beginning or that you know we bought together when i joined has come out of systems of agriculture which we don't endorse from a humane sort of animal livestock perspective or from a, an environmental, you know, um, welfare perspective. I think there is, there is just a, a link with, with quality produce and that type of farming. Of course. Um, so I imagine that just came around very naturally of when you're trying to find um, higher quality things, you're looking for people who are passionate, yeah. who are into it, and then that yeah. would have naturally led them to, to these regenerative practices and organics and things like that because it, it does has, have a link to quality. Um, mm. which well, that's, kind of that's yeah. the happy coincidence. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it, it's... It was sort of important to me that we didn't say that uh, this meat was quality meat or best quality meat, which was what everybody pretty much says about what they sell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, the distinction, it's sort of a nuanced one, is that what we sell embodies a series of qualities and those qualities are the genetics of the animal, the way it's grown, uh, 
the people who look after it, the way they're ma- you know they they manage themselves, and and the people who are employed in the management of those animals, the slaughter, obviously, the way they're transported, and then what we do with them finally. So, those qualities, if they're if if they are well chosen and the decision the correct decisions have been made, I don't have to worry about the quality of the meat. It looks after itself, mm. and so, uh, you know, chefs. And I have total respect for them, don't get me wrong, but they start from mostly from the wrong end. And, and the valorization of chefs is all about what they've done to transform this humble ingredient into something wonderful. I, I see it sort of completely the reverse. I mm. see it as they're the, they're the end of the line of, of, and a very privileged receiver of a, of, of a set of decisions that have been made by many other people before it got to them. And, and the chefs we work with now, I think, put themselves in that position which is a fairly humble position in relation to the produce they they don't see themselves as as um you know magical transformers Mm. um and i think you know working at sean's that you know his food is deceptively simple but there's a high Mm. level of craft behind it uh but he's not flashy in the way he does stuff so i guess there's a a maturation of of chefs in general is i think People who, when they get to cooking sort of the, the, the you know, better food, is when they learn to do less and yeah. way to just handle ingredients in a manner that, that shows off the way they've been produced, right? rather than trying to completely change them or doing this, that, and the other, and, and you know, completely altering what someone spent a lot of time doing. Um, that's, yeah, quite. that's really interesting because um, the regenerative farmers we meet and with whom we work also, you know, the 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 the, the sort of the fundamental idea is to get out of the way of nature yeah yeah you know because nature is far superior at organizing and managing systems and so on and so really the farmer's job is to do the best they can to get out of the way and let that self-organizing principle exist and to a certain degree i suppose you could say that's similar with chefs you know, yeah it's the same with kind of wine as well as um, yeah you know, some, the, the better wines are the ones that come from, from good, good grapes and have been handled gently and then let to do you know what, what they do yeah um i think it's that, that and such interest in the the link you made from the way that the psalms of, of love going to a vineyard mm. lo- love looking at you know a place and terroir um, but chefs are a lot more uh, adverse to actually doing that in their spare time. Well, it sort like, of doesn't occur to them. Yeah, it's exactly. Funny, yeah. You, you, know? you can't like, keep why a song away from the vineyard. They love it. Yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm curious <laughs> yeah. as to why it is that chefs don't mm. have the same drive. Um, yeah, I think it might be something to access. I think um, yeah. vineyards are a lot more open. I just reckon, from my experience, it's yeah. just schedule. Just it just seems to be that like every chef that I've worked with when I've worked in hospitality has been like I'd love to take this team to a number of producers and things like that and in the whatever 10, 15 however many years yeah. I spent in hospitality I, I did that once with a team yeah. and that was before a new restaurant opening yeah. where we were going had the time but then yeah. once the wheels are in motion and everyone's got yeah. their roster and all that sort of stuff mm. to, to yeah. find a way to get well, three couple of days to go and visit yeah. producers is but tough before Tom mm. and I so you do have to make it a priority. I oh, know you're right. Look, I mean, even in yeah. our business, we struggle to get our our um, employees to farms. Mm. It is hard. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but the couple of years running up to before uh, Tom and I bought Caveau, we, we were going out to see a lot more people than when we actually owned the place. Yeah. And we could actually use the produce. And then it was kind of a lot more of... You could argue, though, that it's something that actually, you know, there's an opportunity now, potentially, 
with what's happened with the pandemic to actually rethink some of the ways that we do business. Yeah, I mean, sure. everybody yeah. is rethinking across yeah. the board in all sorts of industries. Maybe this is also something that needs to be mm. reconsidered. Maybe, yeah, definitely. you know, businesses close for a day or two and you, you know, that education and that connection is actually something that consumers value, will value enough to subsidise. Mm. Yeah, know? I mean, I think it's that understanding can can increase quality and I think... That's it. Um, you know, when, when it might be a position where there's, you know, limited resources about and you're really fighting for for people's attention and people's money then mm. those little one two percents can make a difference to your business mm. if that's the difference between customers coming to you because you have this education and this knowledge and, and, mm. you know, and that, that behind you that you know, that could make the difference mm. i i i think that one of the things um that i noticed as well was in the trip that i that i just mentioned moorlands was one of the places that we visited oh, yeah. um taking front of house staff to farms as well was yeah. oh, in terms of the yeah. the return on investment you get yeah, yeah. from we're talking about all staff we're yeah, not just talking exactly. about chefs, not just yeah. about chefs. No, no, not because when they're invested in what they're selling you and they can tell you about the farm or whatever it might be that it, the service quality is just the bar is yeah. just raised so much at that point yeah. um okay let's let's go back to we're still sort of in the in in the beginnings of feather and bone a little bit um and you mentioned laura about how there was no business plan to to, to start with really um not at all <laughs> grant says not at all uh was th there must have been a point where you thought we're onto something here and was there was there a moment and 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 what might have been the trigger that gave you the confidence to say let's do this like we're gonna we're gonna have a real crack at it like i think we probably both have different answers to that yeah. you you answer oh well i th i th i thought early on that um that the the response to the idea was always extremely positive and and often those initial gut reactions are really important i'd sort of been involved in various projects art projects and film projects where long-winded descriptions of things you can see them sort of initially they might be engaged and then the eyes glaze over well uh, you know they're, they're, they're struggling to follow you they got this really quite quickly um, mm. there was more of an emphasis then on 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 breed and probably at the expense of and it was goes to the heart of your question before which is when did it sort of start to become the focus on what's below the ground rather than what's above the mm. ground um, but even at the early stages when we were articulating about sourcing what was above the ground, uh, there was a very quick and direct sort of response, which was, I knew from selling in restaurants and being on the floor that that, that was a powerful, you know, a powerful response and that it would carry it a long way. And um, I didn't quite know what form it would take, really. And, and learning to butcher was um, a very steep learning curve. Mm -hmm. So... I guess like like a lot of businesses like you know m my publishing and maybe some of what you've done Simon and stuff it's it's sort of a a feeling around public response and around the conversations that you have that there's enough people that seem interested in what 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 I'm talking about doing that just got to give it a go at some point. Yeah, yeah. And there's always a risk as especially a lot of time if you bring an idea to people most people say that's a great idea you should do it. And I think 
I think a lot of uh, like bars and restaurants get that quite a lot. They have like like someone who's not really in the industry. I have a lot of friends who say like, "Oh, you make great cocktails, or your cooking's great. You should start a restaurant." Yeah, yeah. And they they dive into it, and then suddenly their friends turn up for the opening party and never again. So there's definitely a leap of faith when with an idea like that. that you're like, "Well, I think this might be the case. Maybe we can turn it into an ongoing business." But it's still quite a jump, and you have to be you know, quite supremely confident. And I think. Like well, I was running, like said, it, uh, running it side by side with still working in restaurants, so yeah. I didn't actually have to say, oh, well, I'm just going right. to go and do this thing mm. now, um, which made the landing much softer than it might have otherwise been. Mm. And, um, and Sean was tremendously supportive in buying a lot of the produce that I was sourcing when, when I started. So I was able to drop shifts slowly as I increased what I was selling. Where, I can tell, oh, sorry. Sorry, Laura, just a quick tidbit. When you bought those first three lambs was it lambs yeah, yeah. Lambs, yeah. where did you put them <laughs> uh, good question uh, they they went to um, the organic butcher in Bondi Road okay he agreed to put them in his cool room okay <laughs> but uh, well this is the other sort of aspect of it there was only three hundred dollars in the business so it bought three lambs so it wasn't <laughs> like a that was, the, that was what was risked. No. There was no capital. Anyway, and I didn't have a refrigerated van, so um, they were delivered in the back of my Corolla. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and I think I went to Bird Cowfish and uh, I sort of got there and then thought, shit, I need something for the lamb. And I had a yoga blanket in the, uh, <laughs> in the car, which sort of served the purpose and... Alex Herbert said, hmm, classy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I sort of had to get past that quickly and um, I did I find a like refrigerated that. van. Eventually, that's good. Uh, eventually, yes. Yeah, cool. There are some very, there were some rather unconventional and interesting methods used at yeah. the outset, well, I, I mean, can assure you. Know, you. Some of which we can't talk about because <laughs> people would think, who the fuck are these people? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get to a certain point and you yeah. need to do it properly yeah, and... Okay. Um, mm. And and for good reason, you know, it's, 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 they were never endangered, but the, the, you know, it's not, it's less than ideal. No, yeah, of course. Yeah. I love those old stories though. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to yeah, say go though, it, Laura, yeah. um, you were saying how, you know, when did you think this is something worth pursuing? Um, I wasn't involved at the outset. This was Grant's idea and Grant's business. Um, I was sort of cheering from the sidelines, mm. but um I wasn't actually involved um, and our lives were quite complicated because Grant was uh, had been working at um, the restaurant but he was also the primary carer for our kids because I was working full-time and we have three sons so um, well I think at that stage initially only two when the business started but then we had another one so things were quite complicated um, but for me the thing Apart from thinking that it looked and sounded great and seeing how people responded to the idea, as Grant said, I got to a point in my own career and my own life where I felt that I, I was really looking for uh, more meaning, I think. Um, I had been involved in work where I felt that maybe I was able to change things from the inside, you know, within businesses. Mm. Um, but that started to wear me down because I didn't feel like was, I was making progress. And I looked at what Grant did and I thought, what he's doing is really, really cool. And it, it ticks every box for me in terms of my ethics and my belief system, what I care about, 
and its business with purpose or its mm. activity with purpose and with real capacity to make tangible change. And long story short, I left my job and I got involved and I started to help Grant. At that stage, it was a shopping bag full of receipts and some invoice books. So we, my so job was to try to... the retail side of the business. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's right. And then, and then it was the other thing too is that people were starting to say, well, I had it, that at the restaurant at, or at such and such a restaurant. How can I get this for my home? So then we, I started working on the retail business. But it was really that moment where I looked at what Grant was doing and I thought, that has meaning and purpose and that makes sense. Mm. And I think that that is the thing that people look for. And I think that we find now even still people who come to us and it's not just, it's other, not just us, obviously, it's other people who have businesses like ours. They're looking for something and they're looking for that sense of purpose and that sense of alignment with their value system and their, the way that they behave in the world, the mm. way they spend their money, the way they cook, the way they, you know, consume. And, um, you know, so for me, it was realizing that that what that meant for me personally, that really catapulted me sort of into a different way of living mm. my life mm. and haven't looked back, you know, Great. Imagine quite, quite good timing as well with the customers um, wanting that that level of, of detail and, and ethics and, and you know, the whole food and drinks industry has, has been going more and more that way. So much it's just quite good timing to start that business with that, that kind of upturn. Well, there was sort of, there was remarkably, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to uh, remember, remember yeah. how, like, the, that 14 years ago is pre-social media. Mm. Mm. Um, so people's contact with farms was really, they had no direct contact with mm. farms. The cannier farmers now are able to Instagram constantly and post and, you know, that, that, that's, that's a real presence in people's it's lives. Before that, I mean, there really there wasn't anything, and um, so it, it, you know, you, you can you can sort of forget just how sort of dis- disconnected we yeah, were from yeah. those things. But the demand was certainly there, mm. and it was a it we were still seen as highly marginal. Where now I think we're sort of seen more or less as mainstream. Mm. Mm. Yeah, if far out, it is it is amazing to think how much how much it's changed. And mm. uh, w- one of the things is is now the dining public recognizing producers when they see them on menus or see them on Instagram posts and they go, oh, well, I I love that lamb or pork or fish or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, In in a time that you're talking about, Grant, I mean, only chefs and people in the industry would know who who a producer would be. And farmers couldn't connect with each other either. So we we had this experience where we were working with people who were mavericks in in the field and they... You know, it was really hard for them because they they couldn't necessarily communicate and network as mm. well with other like-minded people. It was harder. So, mm. I mean, share knowledge and stuff. Oh, is it's so just important, been right? brilliant. It's just been an explosion in capacity. It's all wonderful. of those people. You know, there's not a farmer that we've worked with that has an. And this is still the case, sort of sadly. There's not a farmer that we've worked with, and that's probably about sixty to seventy. I'm not sure of the exact number. Whose immediate neighbour is highly sympathetic or wants to copy what they do Mm. even though they can see the productivity rewards they can see the benefits directly they still don't do the same thing so that's that doesn't seem like much but in in sparsely populated rural areas that that bespeaks social isolation Mm. Mm. there's that guy in the pub who's that freaky grower who you know who 
doesn't have many cattle on his farm. He's got this huge farm and not many on them, but he feeds them all the way through the drought mm. um, and doesn't have a feed bill that cripples them for years to come. And, and so those, I mean, that is changing too, simply because economics are forcing a lot of farmers to reevaluate mm. the, the way they farm. Mm. They're, losing, they're losing land to salination. They're losing land to, you know, degraded fertility. So they know that the productivity is, is, is declining. And so people are being brought to the table now to have a discussion that they wouldn't have had 10 years ago, 12 mm. years ago. And of course the drought brought that harm yeah. in, in very sharp relief. The people who were farming in different ways survived that drought and came out of that drought and are still coming out of the drought um, uh, in a much better shape than, than people who sort of flogged the place. Mm. And um, I mean, the North Coast, you know, up around New England, still technically in drought. Yeah, well. yeah, we forget that, especially on a day like today I when know. it's raining yeah. cats and dogs, you know, you think... Flooding everywhere. Yeah, that's right. But actually, you know, that's not... And for a lot... Um, and as Grant points out, for a lot of people who perhaps haven't been... Uh, were managing their farms in ways which were perhaps more focused on short-term gain as opposed to long-term gain, when those rains do come, you know, they don't necessarily soak in because those soils don't mm. have the capacity. Mm. They're not spongy, we'll, you know. We'll get to, we'll get to soil health uh, in a second. I'll pause <laughs> you there, Laura, before we get to soil health because it's, it's something that's really important to talk about because I think it's a massive, massive issue that people just don't have on their radars in general. Mm. Um, quickly, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how... Feather and Bone incorporates all of these values into into the business. Um, I, I think that it's a good idea to give people an understanding of why whole animal butchery is important and what it does in terms of sustainability. So, Laura, for people you know who, who don't understand the difference and and don't understand what the what the benefits are, do you want to give us an overview? Sure. Um, so, from our perspective. Um, uh, as you've just heard Grant describe in the story of how he started the business, it was sort of whole animals or nothing. Mm. So we started um, probably somewhat um, ignorantly working with whole animals because it was just what it was just what was in front of us. You know, that was the option that was presented to us. You can buy this whole animal. You know, Grant bought it, sold it to the chefs that way, sold it to chefs who were able to negotiate a whole animal. Um, and as you would know, not that many chefs can negotiate a whole it's animal. Tough. That's another thing. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So we used to buy a couple of whole cows, and it was it was a lot of creativity and a, it's lot, very a lot of staff lunches to um to and, use it. These lot and of skill levels and all yeah, that sort exactly. of thing. So so I think it, from the outset we sort of we started without a specific you know focus on the idea of whole animal, but. Um, there were a couple of factors which played into that as well, which one of which, for example, was that farmers we were working with didn't have the um, didn't have an economic framework which allowed them or a logistical framework which allowed them to sell us parts of an animal. So if we wanted to buy from those farmers, we had to buy the whole animal. And um, so from a practical perspective, that was one of the reasons. But of course, it was a little more intentional than that, though, I would say. Well, I was going to go into okay, the right. fact that <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't totally random. Well, you're I saying mean, that it was not just convenience, but I was, it, 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 it was a way of guaranteeing something. Yeah, and, that's right. Uh, well, you can talk to that. No, no, go on. I just wanted to make... Because <laughs> we, we, we did start with a very clear manifesto, for one of another description, which mm. was started in the sort of six months in. And really, we still do it exactly the same way. It's just it just operates on a much bigger scale now. And it's um, printed in the back. Yeah, of the I, I had a good read of it. We'll talk about that same, too. Yeah. So yeah. that mentions that quite clearly, and that it's it's about 
the farmer being allowed to to do what they I need think, to do I as think well. From, from I think it's a, I think maybe one way to talk about this because we can talk about why it is that we buy whole animals. We buy whole animals because it gives us um, it gives us greater accountability, gives us greater quality control. Uh, when we, as we said earlier today we walked through our cool room downstairs through all the carcasses we were looking at them all and you can see how when the carcass is hanging there um, you know that's often an animal we've seen on pasture and we receive that animal whole we can then account to the farmer for the condition of that animal we can account for or we can we can report on the way it was handled and managed when it left from when it left the farm gate to us it gives us um, all of the elements of the animal it's a great picture it's a great snapshot of the farm in a moment in time you know this this carcass is an expression of that farm and all of that practice and to see it in its entirety gives you a huge amount of knowledge and information which we can then pass on back to the farmer and on to the customer but also from a customer's perspective what most consumers don't realize is that what most butchers do and how the market, the conventional market operates is that you buy the sections of an animal that you know that you have an audience for, that you can market, that you can sell. And what your consumers are asking you for as a butcher is limited inevitably by the boundaries of their own knowledge and understanding. Mm. So if all you're doing is buying sections in response to market demand, you're not extending the knowledge and understanding and options available to your customers but you are running a very you know a, a really good economic model in that there's less waste but it's a very dull exchange you know yeah. you don't have that direct relationship when you buy something in a box you really know which farm it came from you really know how it was grown you really don't have any detail it's something that's been through many hands so it's a very lifeless exchange pardon the pun uh, and it's profoundly different. But most people who are buying meat in butcher's shops don't know that. They don't recognise that that's a, the case. It's a tiny section of the animal that people are looking for. That's right. That people want to buy. It, mm. it really is like... when, when that, That's one of the things from seeing a whole animal, yeah. from seeing a whole carcass, you do realise it's like... Like most chefs use this bit, like that, like, like one little strip. That's right. And, and That's there's right. so many other different pieces and cuts and, and things that there might be only one or two of as well. Yeah. And they're, they're the kind of the interesting parts to an animal all the time as well. And the less we use bits. it, the less we know about it. Exactly, and, yeah. and And all of us, from chefs and butchers and consumers lose skills and knowledge in that process mm. so then you end up with a with a consumer a group of consumers who don't know how to cook that at all those parts of that animal yeah, yeah. you know so they all of that knowledge we're just we're just degrading ourselves and diluting our capacity a lot, of, a lot of butchers as well i know i know a butcher i've worked with briefly he really wasn't that knowledgeable about a lot of the questions oh, I had. No. Um, and I imagine because that's what his whole training, his whole job that's was, it. you take these parts They off don't know how to do it. Yeah, and some of those sort of, yeah, <laughs> questions on, on very specific parts, it just there wasn't the knowledge. I was kind of left quite disappointed from it as a, as a chef who wanted to know everything and every little part. To not kind of get that information was, was kind of was quite Well, they don't need it. Exactly, if all yeah, exactly. they're doing is dealing with box meat, they don't need it. Mm. Mm. How... And this is something that Simon can attest to. It's really bloody hard to put offal on the menu still. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of, plenty of parts of, of, of animals that there's still such... It's so, so yeah. tough to find a market for. It's, yeah. it's hard. How, how do you guys... I mean, firstly, have you educated your audience enough for them to demand every bit? And, or, and if not, like, how do, how do you try to get people to buy it? 
livers and kidneys and brains and, and everything. I think that's changed dramatically. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably the growth in the business is it w- initially there was unavoidable waste. I just couldn't find homes for for a lot of the cuts. Um, but now now we have a market, pretty much an audience for pretty much every part mm. of it. So yeah, okay. we have the people that come who just buy bones, the people who come and buy broth from us, which we've made from the bones if they d- can't do that, people who only buy organ meat from us, people who only buy prime cuts from us people who you know and you need all those people mm. you know, uh, in hopefully the right ratios that re- represents the, the size of the animal um, but we we don't have many people that just come in wanting eye fillet they, they s- they're self-selecting i suppose to some extent so uh they go to butcher shops where there's limitless amounts of eye fillet they yeah. just go and crack another yeah. another box open and there's tenderloins forever well also they learn that because we only buy whole animals and because the eye fillet is only 1.3 percent of the body they learn that you know We're if they the come asking come for it we won't <laughs> yeah, we yeah. probably won't have it well these I mean, days it's interesting actually we've got it enough for them because we've driven so many people away yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would only buy it uh there's the, the hardcore that hang on uh, generally get the eye fillet that they require so mm. You know, so it's worked out all right. But it has required, you know, and this is where you've got to grit your teeth because Mm. it's very easy just to say, oh, well, we'll just get a couple of boxes of tenderloin and that will answer the problem. Mm. Um, You've got to hold your line. And and we have. So, you know, I would like to think that we're being rewarded for that sort of hard line approach now because we, we haven't changed the way we buy and sell so um you know in the end this is a this is an exchange of trust and um and our customers trust us we've worked very hard at it though i mean we have spent years and years literally years and years standing talking to customers every day answering questions encouraging explaining teaching you know what we know um we've I've been writing the newsletter now that we send out every week or two weeks for about eight, nine years. Mm. And that newsletter is full of information about the farms. It's full of, you know, stories about how you can use different cuts, uh, why you shouldn't, explanations, you know, like it's, you know, we have been, um, I don't want to make us sound like, you know, I don't know. We've been pretty tireless. And, sure. and we have been mm. driven by the necessity to sell the whole animal because that's what we committed to. So it's an yeah. economic necessity as much as anything else. So there's, there's a strong motivation to work this hard, to educate and communicate. And hopefully, you know, um, uh, um, uh, entertain people and make it pleasurable and enjoyable for them. But there is nothing better than when a customer comes back a week later and goes, you know, I tried that thing you asked me, which I was just so scared. I just had no idea how I was going to do that. And I did what you said and, God, it was great. And all my friends and my family, they went crazy Mm -hmm. for it, you know. And you see this person who's just, you know, they're pumped up with this sense of power and knowledge and control and... And they feel, you know, so much stronger for the exchange. That's what you want. You want every single person to go out and and take more control over the choices that they're making. And confidence. Education is so important with that. And that's probably where where restaurants um, don't quite have that same um, repeat custom or or that that interaction where they can actually give advice on how to cook something. Because, you know, offal and and different cuts, it can be quite technical. Like, it's like... 
and it's still hard to sell in restaurants. Like, like I think like lamb's yeah. brains are absolutely delicious. One of my favourite bits of waffle. But I'd be very, one. very wary yeah. putting on a restaurant <laughs> menu. Yeah. Um, so especially as they have to be really fresh to get the best out of them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's that, and, and then obviously the, the preparation to them. So I mean, yeah. the, that education is is so important for things like that because people just just you know people don't don't just don't know like it's not well we put, we do things like we put offal into mints yeah for example and then and everybody loves that yeah, and they like, not yeah, only love it, it so because good? it tastes so good mm. that's right but also they love the idea that this is a sort of a you know a guerrilla way of getting offal into people's diet <laughs> yeah. and Sneaking parents the put it for the their bolognese. kids totally yeah, right. yeah. this is what yeah. they do and so that's really popular and, and that's like so then you go to them okay so well you did that so how about we take you the next step yeah let's do some anticuchos with the heart Step do, program, you know, yeah, off totally. All. <laughs> That's it, you know. Yeah. So, look, it's possible. Mm. Yeah, great. It has to be fun, though. Yeah. yeah. Mm. All right. Let's um, let's talk a bit about what happens on farms and and some of the issues that that you guys talk about in the book because um, soil health and you know our current systems of agriculture are clearly unsustainable and are taking things away from the earth and not putting anything back in and you spend a lot of time in the book explaining to people what the issues are and and how uh the farmers that you deal with address these issues so um maybe grant do you want to do you want to tell us a, a bit about what the problem with soil is at the moment for for people that are unaware because it is so important uh, well, Australia is, is uniquely poorly placed. Uh, we have relatively small percentage of a vast country is has uh, fertile soils to begin with because we've got very ancient soils that have been leached over millennia, um, which is very different to you know the places that have benefited from recent ice ages. Mm. Um, the Great Plains of America are the result of the melting ice caps in Canada and it all flowed down into the central west of America leaving you know hundreds of feet of topsoil and, and there's only two places in Australia that I know of that have anything like that. Um, so we have to be especially careful and um, as was mentioned before about using hoofed animals, hoofed animals are very tough on ground because they compact the ground and if you leave them in any one place for an extended period of time that compaction is a real issue it's uh, you know the, the the soil remaining porous is is the key to being able to store water in the landscape uh, it also allows you to store carbon in the landscape well one follows the other if you can store carbon you can then store water and australia probably had around 20 percent of in its better areas had around 20 percent carbon when white people first arrived in Australia. We now average around, most farms are averaging around 2%, maybe one to 2%. And that represents a loss of, of productivity as much as anything that is, that is truly unsustainable. So yeah, so the farmers we're working with are really focused on storing carbon in the soil as a way of, of increasing their fertility, but also storing water in the landscape. Um, full dams are misleading. They're often what they tell you is that there's high level of compaction on the soil of the farm because they run off. That, that the runoff is filling the dam rather than being held in the, in the landscape. For we think of farms in a very sort of infantile way. We think of them as two-dimensional objects. We we measure their surface area. And a farm is a three-dimensional productive unit that actually four dimensions because it operates through time. 
good farmers understand that. They understand that they're orchestrating a productive unit through time, through seasons, and they're responding to the seasons. So if you're moving animals around uh, around a landscape, which is what a lot of our farmers will do, they're moving them constantly to promote, to promote um, uh, grass growth and, and never bearing the soil, which is you know the key the key sort of the key sort of idea of especially in dealing with ruminants anyway um, the length of time it takes for them to come back is determined by the season onto that same same area now in really bad seasons that might be a year could even be longer in good seasons and spring you know you might be looking at six weeks before animals can come back onto the same patch of ground but a smart farmer will manage that and manage the stocking density which which is in coherence with the productive capacity of the soil, which changes all the time. And holistic farming principles teach farmers how to manage that and how to make really key estimates of how many you know, days of feed they've got per head of sheep, say, or per head of cattle. Um, it's a different story with chickens and pigs a bit because they're not ruminants and so the, their inputs are being often brought in from outside the farm and so you have to think about them in different ways. But still their, in, their impact on the soil has to be sort of measured and understood. So pigs and chickens have a remarkably high impact on the soil because they, they work ground very hard. Pigs are like tractors, anyone who's seen, and very few people have seen tra- uh, pigs outside, they cultivate as they go. and. Um, so their impact is extremely large, so you have to manage them in a way that requires you moving them often. Uh, but that impact can be really beneficial. So the, the thing about farming is that most of the impacts um, are manageable. It's all about duration. So if what can be an asset if managed well turns into a liability if managed poorly. Mm. Can and I, can so I um, to, to really sort of drive it home... Yeah. Can you can you explain what poor management looks like to give us the contrast? Yeah, well, poor. There's a there's a photo in our book actually, which is, yeah. is almost the it's 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 the example. It's a great shot uh, that shows the the fence line um, between one of the farms that we source from and his neighbour's farm, and he, the the neighbour has essentially allowed all of the standing grass to be eaten by his cattle. Now he would say that that's sort of smart farming because he's put the available feed into the cattle that he runs but in terms of recovery he is going to be so much slower and and just the preservation of the ecosystem at that time even dead grass standing in a field has a has a huge role to play it it catches dew and then water runs down to the base of it so there'll be small amounts of water collected Uh, it provides habitat for insects and and there's also microbial exchange going on at the root level so um you know, as above, so below, and it's absolutely the case. So uh, if, if you allow the, so- the soil to be bared like that, one, you're going to get high level of compaction. When the rain does come, and rain like we've had in the last few days, that will take that topsoil with it as soon as you get a storm, and then it goes straight into the creek, and then it's out in the, in the oceans within, within days. And that is a waste of fertility that we can't afford. I think most people experienced... Um, the dust storms who people who lived in Sydney or the east coast of Australia anyway last last summer would have experienced what they call the dust storms that came from the inland and and that you know that that should have been our agriculture minister and our environment minister making a joint statement saying that this is a national disaster because basically we were losing millions of tons of topsoil every single day 
But instead, it's like a dust storm and it's an inconvenience that means you've got to wash your car. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> really, we are so far back in, in, the, in the understanding of what it, it's going to take to be able to feed people equitably and to feed people on a fertility base that is sustainable. At the moment, we farm with the idea of acceptable loss, which means that you've got a declining fertility constantly. Uh, in Australia's case, we are now at the point where there's no such thing as acceptable loss. If you've got 100 foot of topsoil, even that is questionable. I mean, how many years are you going to keep coughing up an inch a year? Mm. It, it won't take you that long before you stop farming in that spot. And that's the history of Western agriculture, yeah. unfortunately. Mm. There's been three or four cultures that we know of that have managed to farm in the same spot for more than uh, a thousand years. One in the Amazon where they use charcoal, basically biochar, and, and grew soil because, as everyone knows, the tropics are, you know, high level of rainfall but highly leached soils, actually not very fertile at all. So they built, they built the fertility through constant additions of, um, of charcoal. And that allowed them to have sedentary populations really quite close to each other, you know, and uh, most, most environments it finishes up in wars, either over water or over food. Um, when I look at, when we drive around Australia and visit farms, it's, it's, it's so stark, the difference between land management practice. So most farmers will talk about what they get off a farm. Very few talk about what they put into a farm to attain that output. Uh, any business, whether it's a farm or any other business, is, a is, is a, an equation between input and output. And most farms don't adequately measure their input or run on a much too high input level, which means that the risk level is enormous. They're 90% input to make 10%, but the, if the season goes bad, that is an enormous loss. So our farmers, or I call them our farmers, it's patronising, the farmers we work <laughs> with... Uh, understand that if they can reduce their input costs and increase or main, uh, maintain or increase their outputs, then they're well on the way to having a viable farm, even through bad seasons. Mm. And that has to be a definition of sustainability that we can all work with. It's a very loose term, sustainability, but if, it, if, you, don't, if you can't boil it down to something like that, then you know, it's, you know, everyone's working with sustainable produce, apparently, but, you mm. know, what's the, what's the definition of that? Yeah, it's a tough one. Mm. Um, Laura, the next sort of step and something that definitely comes into a conversation about the ethical omnivore or people's, people's choice in the way that they consume food is a conversation around the place of animals in a sustainable food system and not only sustainable but in a regenerative food system that hopes to put put stuff back into the places that you're talking about grant that um have been stripped of of, of nutrients and and carbon and the ability to retain water and things like that do you want to talk a little bit about what regenerative agriculture means in the place of animals in that and then maybe we'll try to sort of talk about how conscious meat consumption sort of fits into that picture Oh yes, the elephant in the room. Yes, <laughs> it always comes back to that. It's about cost, and it's about whether or not we should be doing it. I think, um, um, you know, Grant's alluded to it. Um, it's about balance and management. So, you know, you're absolutely right when you said before that hooved animals do cause, you know, potentially can mm. cause terrible damage, especially in very delicate. Um, soils like we have or landscapes like we have um, but really it's about management I mean yeah, animals in landscapes can be enormously um, enormously useful and beneficial in adding fertility 
and vitality to soil and to ecosystems. Um, as Grant's always pointing out, animals are the best cyclers of nu- nutrient. You know, you can use other forms of, um, of, of putting nutrient into soil, but they often take a lot longer. Animals can cycle something overnight, you know, and add, add benefit to the soil. So uh, there's, there's a really significant argument um, in support of animal agriculture as almost as a tool to add vitality and fertility to soils if done properly it's all about balance and it's all about management and it's all about understanding that the system that we have you know that we largely rely on now for for from which we source our food prioritizes scale and speed um, and the unfortunately what happens is that when you focus on a narrow um, palette of breeds which grow incredibly quickly under really specific conditions that are very intensive um, the price you pay or the price we collectively pay as a community for that is very very high and that's what's unsustainable so I think you know I don't agree that it's impossible to grow animals for food and that animals in livestock uh, uh, livestock agriculture doesn't have a place I think it does have a place I th- we have seen many examples and instances in the farms we work with where landscapes have been significantly improved by this yeah. and not just in Australia all over the world so I think um, I think the idea of a mixed farm is one that we need to focus on um, the idea of monocultures whether you're talking about plants or animals is inherently mm-hmm. unsustainable and that's something that we need to move away from you know this this focus on growing one thing you know at large scale yeah, which I think um, is really problematic. Goes so. for animals and, and plants as well. I think. Well, um, absolutely, that's right. It's the same thing. I think that, that, that was very fascinating listening to that. I was kind of just sitting back, and I think I um, just want to go back to saying how a farm is kind of a four-dimensional thing, and, and time being so important. I think that's people have a weird concept of time and of how long these bad practices have been going on because it's, it's a very short space of time um, in, in the scheme of things. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and I mean, even just from the from the you know, time humans have been farming, um, it, it's in the you know, the, the scale of farming is is, is very recent. It's um, post Second World War, yeah, really, so with I mean, industrialization, yeah, 50, 50, 60, 70 years. So That's right. that damage we've been doing um, is is a recent thing as well. So I think of a lot of people who are um, against meat, they're they're generally against that large scale um, and that damage that it's doing, and it, and. and we should be able to reverse it if we take steps now but like yeah time is a very interesting thing and especially with australia as well with the amount of time we've had these sort of european animals and like you're saying how the, the soil is different here and how we should be even more careful mm. about the soil management and i think that's the kind of a fact that is lost on a lot of people is that concept of time yeah uh, um duration is and and the gap between things yeah, is the great is really organizer you know it's it's what gives sense to music it's what gives sense to farming it's 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 when you have continuous activity that there's no sense because there's no mm. pause there's no break um which sort of speaks to the other thing about abundance and you know i thought it was really interesting with the with the fires how the veneer of abundance was stripped very quickly you know we only needed a fire to block the prince's highway and and every every uh, supermarket on the south coast sort of ran out of food yeah um it's it is an illu- it is an illusion and it's one that that will continue if we continue to subscribe to it will 
not allow us to make the choices that we need to make about the way we feed ourselves. And, you know, there is, there is sort of no more important decision really about how you store water and how you feed it, how you feed the population mm. um, and, and shelter them. They're, they're the sort of three basics of, of survival and, and the world is essentially organised around them. Um, but it, they, they, because it's so ordinary in that we, we eat three times a day or those privileged enough to be able to eat three times a day, mm. um, we can have, which goes back to Laura's point, we can make a, a really powerful decision every time we eat. So we actually have a power, the power to change things. We can support farmers who are creating change. And the message of hope is that landscapes respond extremely mm. quickly <coughs> to different management practices. Just as it's taken one of our farmers who that we work with who you mentioned, Moorlands, he's a sixth generation farmer mm. and there's not too many more than six generations in Australia of, of continuous family ownership. Uh, he inherited a farm that had been, let's face it, really badly farmed for five generations and he could see that he could see well, the damage it was caused. farmed with european farming methods well, in a landscape he's farming but european animals but he's farming in a way he, that's which right, is completely that's right. but his, his antithetical to the way they approached it mm. so um their farming was a, was a farming of loss and and overstocking and um and inadequate rotation of of animals um of erosion of what I mean just the full litany of disaster really about the way we farm which which there on the Lachlan River and the upper Lachlan which used to be known as the fish river for very good reason um, is now a silted up sort of as silt like all of our rivers is is highly silted and um, and no longer no longer is a is a habitat for endangered fish which is one of the things that he's engaged in in trying to preserve the uh, southern pygmy perch but as an allied activity to his farming practice it's very interesting visiting a farm like that because you see the return of of um, biology essentially mm. and it starts from the ground up because once the once the bacteria and the microbes are in the soil and they're exchanging with fungus everything just builds on top of that the insects return the birds return to eat the insects you know it, and on and on he's taken about 20 percent of his uh, arable land out of production yet he produces more sheep now than he used to before mm. most people find that a very hard thing to get their head around how do you actually reduce your and it comes back to surface area surface versus area. yeah absolutely so his mm. depth of and production ideas of value too. Is, is way is way more but in, in in absolute terms he's increased his output while reducing the area of land that he farms mm. and people need to get their head around that paradox to then understand why we're farming badly and the colonial impulse to just take the next farm and expand your surface area is not going to serve you it won't serve you very well if if um if you're taking the same practice to that extended surface area all that will happen is that you will put off the day where you can no longer service your debt another 10 years mm. because your scale will protect you for 10 years which is in the bank's interest but certainly isn't in our interest as a nation mm. and as grant says you know if the seasons are good you're fine but when the seasons aren't and what's happening right. now all of the farmers we work with report to us is what's happening now is that the seasons are more predictably bad mm. 
and so therefore you know it's now it's now a matter of urgency to change farming practices because the systems that we've relied on for the last couple of hundred years really won't work anymore. They mm. just won't work anymore. Do you think so we are nearing or at a tipping point? Mm. Well, that depends. Uh, that farmers the reacting that, this way. That depends entirely on whether or not we've got the we as a community are prepared to understand that this isn't a problem which is a farmer's problem. And it's not necessarily even a consumer's problem. It's a community problem. Yeah. This is a problem we must solve together. And one of the things that is uh, uh, that that must happen is that we need, just as the farmers we work with manage their farms holistically, we need holistic solutions to these problems, which bring in water policy, energy policy, soil policy. You know. Um, uh, health mm. you know like all of these things we need to understand that these problems must be solved with representatives from all of those different um uh, uh decision making bodies mm. in the room at the table together we will not solve these problems separately mm. and we have a siloed approach to solving these problems i care about animal welfare i care about the environment i care about energy i care you know actually it's all one and the same thing mm. and that's how we need to start thinking about these things so when you say can you can you grow animals in agriculture and is that is that right or proper or ethical or is it sustainable my response is well growing animals is just one part of this conversation these these issues apply just as much as to crops and to legumes and they apply just as much to you know the policy of water management and you know we need a radically different approach it's interesting isn't it when you know i mean I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna trash trash veganism or anything. But the uh, you know people people being against meat consumption can be so vehement in their approach. Where well, then they go and they no, drink almond. Well, milk. you could I drink mean, almond honestly. milk, or you could just not buy organic, or you could buy imported vegetables and things like that, or or legumes, and then that's apparently a solution. When that's right. Yeah, like I mean, and like you say, there's, there's there's a lot more pieces to the puzzle than just yeah. whether or not you eat. Meat it's not the what, it's the how. Yeah. It is, it's, it's extremism. It's the, the the people who think we should abolish all meat haven't got a solution to how we feed. Which um, isn't to say we shouldn't eat a bit less meat. Oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and it's a middle ground, which which makes more sense. It's better farming <coughs> practices, eating less meat, having a more varied diet. Um, you know, and you will pay more for it when you purchase the meat, but That's you'll pay less yep. for it as a society yep. in environmental damage and in health issues. So. Mm. Uh, it just depends when you want to cough it up, really. Mm. Um, yeah. Through taxes you want to cough or through yeah. at the yeah. counter. So yeah. the costs are often socialised and um, the profits are privatised. And I think we should need to really sort of rethink that idea. Mm. Yeah. It's very hard to talk about money and food, though. I mean, it is really, it's really difficult because it's very easy for someone like me to sit at this table and say, oh, well, you know, you should be buying this kind of food because yeah. it's better for the world and better for you and so on. But, you know... How do you sell out to someone who's, who's, well, who's living under the poverty totally, line? Totally, that's right. Well, that's exactly, right, or just don't exactly. have either the skill or the opportunity to cook. Yeah, mm. yeah. Most people in Australia, not all, but certainly most people in Australia, though, aren't in that position. Mm. And, you know, Laura was talking before about the sort of reward we get when somebody goes away and cooks something. Now, that might be, I was thinking imme immediately of of uh, goat brisket, you know, which is not a glamorous cut. We're talking $22 a kilo. Mm. Uh, off the bone so you're going to feed five people with that comfortably we're down to four dollars a serve of a really high a-class protein um, 
that's within most people's budget. That's mm. the cost of a coffee for each person you're going to feed, and you'll probably have something left over as well. Yeah, that is cheap. Mm. Yeah, guess that, a and how do you make it cheaper? Yeah. I mean, that is really cheap. This yeah. is a knock-on effect of the, the people who can afford it. If they start eating more parts of the meat, then that means you can bring the cost down because people are getting more money out of you know, per, per animal. I guess that that would kind of have a knockdown if if everyone embraced that um, to prices of, of certain cuts coming down, making it more available. I think mm. there's a you know like the. Mm. I'm not a supermarket basher by any means, mm. but I really have problems I with. Am. Okay, <laughs> I just think that <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm not either. Like they, they serve just, their purpose for. Well, people. they do, and and ninety percent of people buy through supermarkets, mm. and if you go to any country town, yeah, it will be thing. basically yeah, yeah, be the only it. place that you can access food, right. fresh food. Um, there may be a butcher, there may be a fruit and vegetable shop, but unlikely. Most country towns don't have those anymore. Um, so. And, and for most suburban dwellers, that's the same as well. So a huge number of people are accessing their food through supermarkets. My issue with supermarkets is the, you know, down, down. The prices are coming down all yeah. the time. Now, who's that at? That's at the expense of the producer. That's yeah, at the yeah, expense yeah, yeah. of the animals. That's at the expense well, of us, the environment. And our health. And effectively us. Yeah. So you, you don't that's a really damaging idea that you're going to pay less and less for more and more. Mm. And if we've got that idea, I think, you know, we won't be able to advance the conversation in the way that we've been yeah. talking about I mean, today. You don't see the supermarkets' profits go down when they have these campaigns. <laughs> so no, you that, don't. That, that no, you don't. One that shows you straight away who's taking the hit. The supermarket also needs to understand that you know, there's a there's a, a clock ticking. The supermarket mm. might be making profits now, but as our as all of these uh, um, uh, ways of measuring um, community health start to impact, yeah. you know, we collectively go down. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the supermarket <laughs> with us. So I think we require a much more. You know, we we, we need to think much more long term about the solutions mm. for these problems. Okay. Um, I'm conscious of time, yeah, so Stephan's let's start wrapping it up. Us. That's fine. No, um, we just try, try to keep to an hour, but um, let's finish. Let's finish on the book. You've got this beautiful book, um, the Ethical Omnivore. Uh, maybe Laura, just tell us a bit about number one. How how did you come to to write a book, and um, and what was the process like? Uh, well, um, uh, gee, how do I answer that question? Um, so, as I think I said before, uh, one of the uh, one of the things that we've been doing for a long time is writing a weekly news, weekly or fortnightly newsletter. Um, and um, over the course of a long period of time, we have a pretty loyal readership for that newsletter, um, and it allowed us to to uh, conduct a conversation with people who are interested in the same sorts of issues as us. Not just people who are buying food from us, but also people who have common interests in all sorts of different places. And that conversation is immensely rewarding and enjoyable. Um, and we, at the same time as conducting that conversation, we, in an effort to promote the farmers we work with to tell their stories and to educate people, pass on the knowledge that we were lucky enough to be gaining along the way, um, we, Every day we are answering questions from our customers. You know, where does my meat come from? How is it grown? Um, how did it die? How should I cook it? Should I even eat it at all? All of these questions, we're just constantly finding ourselves answering. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we could put that knowledge into 
something that people could have as a sort of a handbook. Mm-hmm. Just what we've... It's just our voice. It's just our perspective, mm. our perception. And so um, so I guess I, th- I, wanted, I wanted to do this for a long time. and But it took a long time to actually get to the point where we could do it because, you know... You've got a family, Excellent. you're running a business and writing a book is, is no... It's, as, as I discovered, it's not the same as writing a newsletter. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> it's so a process. we were lucky. We, um, you're just grimacing there, Steph. It's like giving you PTSD of, uh, of your last book, maybe. We, had, um, <laughs> we, we were lucky because we, uh, uh, we, had a con- we had a conversation with Murdoch and they came to the party pretty quickly. So mm. having a contract was nice. Having a, yeah, um, helps. Yeah, that's right. It was very interesting, though, in the process because we had thought we very much wanted to answer the questions that we were asked in the butchery. We didn't think we wanted to write a recipe book. Um, But the publisher said this is something you should do. Because they sell. Because they sell. Mm. And we understood the rationale for that. That made a lot of sense. We wanted people to... We, we understood that meat is a tricky subject to start off with and we also understood that people um, need some practical tools and few recipes that help them work out how to approach some of these unusual cuts is a good thing. Uh, and we also understood the logic behind giving them... It's almost like a Trojan horse, I suppose. Yeah, no, it's um, good. It's great. But, but we... Uh, what we also realised, uh, well, so initially when the publisher said, um, you know, you should have recipes in this book, we really balked um, because we didn't know quite how we'd do it. But after a while, we realised the answer was obvious. Yeah, tell us. The book is about community. It's about the community of of creatures and organisms in the soil. It's about the communities of insects that engage with the plant, you know, that, that live above the surface of the soil and, the, and in the ecosystem. It's about the animals. It's about the farmers. It's about the people. It's about the people who cook the food. It's all of these interconnected communities. Um, and along the way, what we've learned is that, uh, I can't remember who said it, but it's that idea that if you tug on, on one part of the universe, you know, it changes the shape of the universe in another part. Everything is interconnected Mm. and everything impacts on everything else. And the more you understand that idea, the more profoundly that affects the way you think about things. And and so the idea of interconnected communities and the the absolute critical importance of healthy, vibrant communities um, is really at the heart of the book. And so one of the things that we've also become aware of over the years is the fact that we have our own community almost sort of in the same way that starting the business wasn't you know a clear sort of plan I think we've also recognized over time that we are part of a wonderful wonderful community of people Mm. of customers and activists and farmers and people who have common interests and passions and so the obvious thing was to say to our community you give us the recipes you know you put your recipes Great way in. To how do, do you what do you do it makes it so what beautiful and personalized and so it every really brings it all story, together yeah you know, it's fantastic the person who did it so I that was it. a and that gives us an awful lot of pleasure because these people are fascinating mm. we find our customers just as interesting as the farmers we work with they've mm. all got these incredible stories you know how did they come well, to be thinking it. this way about food and, and they're buying the whole animal from you as yeah, well they've got over time over time yeah over time well it yeah it's 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 it, it's been a great exercise really because it's it's um, you know there are people who have uh, you know, grown grown up with us, and um, 
and uh, there are children who are now adults who say, oh, yes, I used to come down to the butcher shop when I was four years old and, um, and, uh, and now I cook for myself. And so it's sort of been part of their life. And that, that's really sort of special in a way. It makes us sound really old. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's just that they're young. And, uh, <laughs> no, but and that's 14 true. years is a long yeah. time for them. Um, We've seen people have babies and grow families. Mm. And yeah, that's right. And so that's been really good. But a lot of the producers that we work with, we've worked with for 12 years as well. So we've yeah. gone through the changes in their lives as much as mm. anything. One particular producer, you know, has had his whole farm uh, was burnt out in the Sir Ivan Doherty mm. fires from four years ago. Uh, plus then three years of, of horrendous drought on top mm. of that. Um, and still he missed only two deliveries in yeah. all of that time. Wow. Yeah. Of yeah. some of the best beef that we that we saw. So that to me says a lot about the way he farms and the the, mm. the benefits that you get from mm. the the right genetics in the right place managed the right way. So it's it's um you know, that's what we should be striving for. Mm. We right. feel very lucky, you know, like incredibly lucky. We have access to and we have relationships with people who we consider to be incredibly thoughtful and inventive and creative and interesting and I mean you know it's um it's a, an enormously gratifying wonderful experience mm. and the book gave us an opportunity to just pull some of that together and yeah. it's like any of these things it's a moment in time we hope that it's a useful tool for people mm -hmm. and that they are as inspired as we are by the farmers the stories of the farmers we work with because you know really the the the, the most important thing is that people feel overwhelmed by how on earth to navigate this minefield exactly. of food That's tough. and so what we wanted to do with this book is to say uh, not only here are some here are some suggestions for how the sorts of questions you should be asking the people who sell you your food and some suggestions for how you should be thinking about these things but also there is a real message of hope here and that is as Grant said before these landscapes can be transformed relatively quickly but it takes will and it takes all of our will we all have to work together and we all have to pull in the same direction every little step everybody makes in the right direction is is you know something to be celebrated and everybody deserves a pat on the back we're not all perfect we all fuck up you know but every little step in the right direction towards um, endorsing and supporting better food production systems is going to benefit all of us in the long term so and there's lots of opportunity it's exciting yep it's fantastic mm. and it's a beautiful book thank you everyone out much. there go get one um to finish off how people how can people get the book and how people how can people find feather and bone uh, just probably through the websites the easiest way and um, we're based in Marrickville in Sydney uh, but we also deliver all over Sydney and a bit further afield as well the book is available from the normal big retail chains or you can buy it directly from us or small or from regional local, local bookshops book like Better Red Than Dead just up the road yeah. um, is stocking it um, support your independence there's mm. uh, yeah depending where you're accessing it from yep. there's many ways to access it it's um, not hard to find if you want it Perfect. Just don't confuse us with uh, Feather and Bone in um, Hong Kong, which bears no <laughs> connection to us whatsoever. But you might find if you Google Feather and Bone, you get them instead of us. Oh, well. <laughs> well, it's a great book. Congratulations. Thank you, Thank you um, very much. It's only a week after launch. It's it's beautiful. And I think this is exactly what people need. I, I, I work in a world where people think about the sustainability of their food consumption and like you say it's a minefield trying to navigate it mm -hmm. so 
a beautifully presented modern book that not only sort of gives you great recipes and talks about community, but acts as that succinct handbook um, and, and, and tells the stories of the farmers and things like that is perfect. So congratulations. Thank you, and it's Thank fantastic. you so much. No really worries, appreciate huh? the opportunity cool. to talk to you today. No worries. <laughs> we'll you. leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, dear listeners. Steph here. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Food Fight. If you want to get in touch with us, it's at The Food Fight Podcast on Instagram or The Food Fight Podcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you and we want to talk to you. Please leave us a five star review on iTunes. That really helps. If you want to hit me up, it's quicksandfood.com or at quicksandfood on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with Simon, it's Simon underscore Evans underscore TBD on Instagram. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you again with another episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.